few weeks back, we were talking about the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and I mentioned that one of the phrases that's kind of attached to the Old Testament lately is the phrase that the Old Testament is dying. It's not as familiar as it used to be. It's not as, there's not the awareness about what happens in the Old Testament that there used to be. In fact, in some cases, because of some of the hard stuff that's in the Old Testament, there's an aversion to even paying attention to the Old Testament. And so this is kind of um, not only for that reason, but to come back to the Old Testament and see what God has for us in the book of Joshua in particular. Now some background. As I said before, we're going to do about six or eight sermons on the book of Joshua. We're not going to cover everything. We're going to be selective. But we are going to talk about some difficult stuff. There There are some hard things in the book of Joshua. There are some anomalies and ambiguities about historical stuff that needs to be addressed. We might not be able to solve it, but I think we can address it and talk about it and say, how come it's happening here and it's not happening here or it's different here and it's different there? There are some of those things, especially in the Old Testament uh, narratives about situations and circumstances. And so we're going to talk about it. Like I say, we may not be able to answer it. We may not have an answer that that suits you, but we are going to address it. The other thing in the book of Joshua that's very difficult for a lot of people is this whole destruction of the Canaanites. As the children of Israel kind of swoop in and their uh, directive from God is to utterly destroy the Canaanites. And so that's a hard thing for people to swallow. And we're going to address it. We're going to talk about it, whether I give you a a suitable answer as far as how I understand the scriptures and and how that all works out. But we need to address it. We need to talk about it. We can't just sort of say, well, we're just going to... Remember when you were a kid in Sunday school or junior church or something and you'd hear these Old Testament stories? It's like the story of David and Goliath. We always heard about David defeating Goliath, but we never heard the part about David hacking off Goliath's head and putting it on a stick. And, you know, as adults, we can't afford to be selective when it comes to understanding the Bible. A couple of things are important for us to understand as we get to, the, get to uh, our time in the Old Testament. In, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says these words to Timothy, All Scripture is inspired, all Scripture is God-breathed, and it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now when Paul says that to Timothy, all Scripture, the New Testament hasn't even been written yet. Paul is saying that to Timothy, he's talking about the Old Testament, he's talking about the Hebrew Scriptures. All Scripture is inspired, all Scripture is God-breathed, and it is profitable. It will correct us, it will reprove us, it will realign us, it will train us, it will correct us. Romans chapter 15 is another place where Paul talks about the Hebrew scriptures particularly anticipating the New Testament, but at that time when he writes Romans, he only has the Old Testament to work with. Romans 15 verse 4, Paul says, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Everything, everything that was written in the past, from Genesis to Malachi, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So my goal is that we would have a sense of understanding the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's, sometimes it's just hard 
to get our head around it a little bit. There are things that where there's continuity with what happens in the Old Testament, happens towards the New Testament, and there's discontinuity. Some things stop, some things end, some things finish, some things continue. And so as we work in this um, series on the book of Joshua, I hope we will come to understand the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But first we need a little background. I was a geography major back in my university days. I find maps extremely helpful. They just give me by bearings. And no, even when I'm driving, I still don't use a map. But maps I find very helpful. Uh, and especially in situations like this. So let's go back because as we come to the book of Joshua, the first thing we need to understand is that the children of Israel have been in the wilderness for 40 years. So Justin, if you can put up slide one, we get a sense of, okay, they came from Egypt they worked their way down through the Sinai Peninsula, Mount Sinai, the giving of the law, and then back around the wilderness. And within about three months of their journey from Egypt, they're on the verge of entering the promised land. Within about three, a three-month walk. Now understand that the estimates are that there's probably about a million people in this group of the 12 tribes of Israel. So about the population of Saskatchewan. Okay, so you're traveling with the population of this province. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I guess relative to other provinces, it's probably a good thing. But there's about a million of them leaving Egypt, heading for the promised land. And so there's their journey through the wilderness. And as some of you know the story, they, they complain, they grumble, they murmur. Um, they disobey the Lord's directives. And the adults, over 20, are told you're not going to enter the promised land. You're going to wander for another 40 years. You're going to die in the wilderness. And your children, who at the time were 20 or less, are going to be able to go into the promised land. So the promised land, they make their way up near Jericho, near Mount Nebo up there. That's their, after wandering for 40 years in a territory that they could have made it to in about three months. How would you like to drive for 40 years when you could have got there in three months? So they land on the eastern side of the Jordan. Next slide, Justin. So here's kind of the, the way the land is going to be divided. Here's the recognition of the 12 tribes. So when they cross the Jordan, each tribe, there's 12 tribes, there would be 12 large stones. But those are the tribes. You notice there's three tribes on the east side of the Jordan. Now modern, modern geography, that's, that's, the, that's the nation, the country of Jordan and Syria above it. On the east side of the Jordan River is the country of Jordan. Those three tribes ask for and are given the land east of the Jordan. It's not in God's original plan. Go back and read Deuteronomy 2 and 3. Go back and read Numbers chapter 32 to 34. But when the children of Israel got to that part before they're going to cross the Jordan River to go into the promised land, the tribes of Gad, Reuben, and half Manasseh said, we'd like to stay here. They're herders, they're livestock people. This is good land, this is flat land. We'd like to stay here. It wasn't God's original plan. It wasn't in the way God was laying it out. But when they asked Moses, God said, okay, I'll give them that land. And so that's the alignment of, of the tribes and the alignment of the uh, property, if you will, in the land, land of Canaan. Next slide, Justin. So here's the three tribes the two and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan, 
The children of Israel are camped down where it says Reuben there somewhere. They're about going to cross over the uh, Jordan River to Jericho in, in uh, Joshua chapter 2. They're camped out around Shittim, east of the Jordan River. So that's sort of our situation. So when we come to Joshua chapter 1, so if you want to work out of your Bibles in your pews, Joshua chapter 1, page 199, or find in your own Bible or on your um, electronic media, Joshua chapter 1, let's work our way through uh, the first chapter. Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 to 9, God reveals himself to Joshua. Now, what's interesting here, again, there's a connection. So when I'm talking about these stones, it's not just the stones in terms of Joshua. I want to be the stones in terms of us because I want you to realize that these things didn't just happen back in the 14th century B.C. or the 13th century B.C. The Word of God is living and it's alive and it has something to say to us today. So there's what these stones mean to the children of Israel in terms of crossing the Jordan, but I think there's a sense in which what do these stones mean to us? Because the first thing that happens in the book of Joshua is God reveals himself to Joshua. What's our vision and value statement say? To our, our, our mission is to reveal and embrace God and his son Jesus. But that only happens because God has revealed himself to us. So Joshua chapter one, right off the bat, hits us right where we are. This idea of understanding how God is a God who reveals himself. And not that, jo this isn't the first time Joshua has heard this, he knew about this, he knew this was coming. Um, back in the book of Numbers and the book of Exodus, Joshua is told he's gonna succeed Moses, but this is sort of, now it's time to cross over. The time of transition of wandering is over. It's now time to take what God has promised them, what God is gonna give them. The revelation of God to Joshua. Chapter one, verse one, page 199. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. So this is just God talking directly to Moses, or to Joshua, sorry. It's just God and Joshua. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, just as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, so south to north, and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country. The Hittites uh, resided mostly in Turkey, but they came down uh, through Syria, what we know as Turkey, down through Syria, that's to the north again, to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you, be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. So this is Joshua's calling. He, God is, here's what I'm calling you to do. You are the one who is gonna lead this people. We're gonna go from this transition time of 40 years of wandering. We are now gonna settle and find rest in the land that I have promised them. Now the land, the promise of the land goes back to Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15. It goes back to Abraham when God promised Abraham that through him all the families of the world would be blessed. 
Part of that comes from residing in the land that God is going to give them, the land that God is going to show him. And so this promise has been around for a long time, and it's now about to be realized. It's now about to be actualized. So that's the call. Joshua hears from God directly what God wants him to do. Verse 7. Be strong and very courageous. So verse 6 said, be strong and courageous. Be strong and very courageous. Because now he's going to talk about how this is going to happen. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. So it's, it's kind of like the first be strong and courageous is about the job I'm giving you to do. The second be strong and courageous is about how you need to go about it. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn to it, turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So here's Joshua's around how this is going to happen by being faithful, by being obedient to what God has directed him to do in the book of the law, in the book of, the, of what we know as Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy the Ten Commandments and the, atten- the um, other commandments that are given in that part of the Bible. But it's, it's all up to Joshua's obedience. Don't expect success if you're out of step with God's expectations. Don't expect success if you're out of step with God's commands. Don't expect success if you don't care about God's requirements. See, the land is a gift. Over and over in this passage, over and over in Exodus and Numbers, when God talks about the land in in Deuteronomy, it's the land I'm going to give you. With the gift comes responsibilities. And so Joshua is reminded of his responsibilities. And again, this is just God to Joshua. This is God to the, the new leader. But it also trickles down Because as we get to the New Testament, right, the presence of God isn't just with the leader. The presence of God is with every follower of Jesus. So one of the differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament is this realization that it's not just God's presence with the leader, and it's not just God's presence either through the tabernacle or the temple. The presence of God by his Spirit dwells in every follower of Jesus. Everyone who makes Jesus Christ their Lord and Savior, the Spirit dwells in them, and the presence of God is with them. In this particular case, it's a trickle down from the leader. In the New Testament, realization of the promise, it's for every disciple, it's for every follower. Verse 10. So it's time for the people to prepare. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, go through the camp. So there's there's apparently a, a, um, 
a role within the, uh, how, how, the, how Moses set up these one million people wandering through the wilderness, there are these assistants or almost like administrators who are able to get the word out, right? And so Joshua orders the officers of the people, each tribe, each clan, each family, somehow there, there was a network to get the word out, go through the camp and tell the people, get your provisions ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan. Last time they crossed the Jordan, they didn't have time to prepare, if you remember them coming out of Egypt, they're being chased by the Egyptians and by Pharaoh and his chariots and his horses. They didn't have time to prepare. It's just go, and God parted the waters of the Red Sea. Here they have time to prepare. Next week we'll talk about that preparation time. And the atmosphere may not be what we, what we would like when we're preparing for something. Go through the camp and tell your people, get your provisions ready. Three days from now you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land. The Lord your God is giving you Again, it's a gift for your own. So there's a time of preparation. And interesting, I was a um, fellow pastor in Regina, uh, Pastor Barry Bruce. Some of you may know him. He's good friends with Todd and Laura Mraz. Um, those kind of the Wood Mountain crew a fair bit. Anyway, Barry and I are both, it turns out, working on Joshua, and so we've been comparing notes a little bit. And Barry talked about the realization that there are key consecration points it, for the people in the book of Joshua, uh, before a battle, before an incident, there, there are preparation and sort of consecration points before something significant is going to happen. A consecration point is what? It's, it's, a, it's a dedication. It's a, it's a presentation of yourself to God. It's a, it's a making sure I'm ready. Is my heart pure? Is my heart clean? Have I made myself right before God with the things that, that I've done wrong, with my sins, with my selfishness. Um, this this three-day stretch is sort of a consecration point for the children of Israel. They've been wandering for 40 years. When they, um, some of them may have been 20 years old, they're now about 60, and they've been, they've been waiting 40 years for this crossing. And Joshua says, okay, we're going to go, but we're going to go in three days. I don't know if I'd been wandering for 40 years in the wilderness, eating the same food every day for 40 years. Three days just might seem like, why? Why? We're here. Let's go. But there's, there's a sort of consecration moment Time for self-examination, a time for repentance, a time for rededication. And we'll talk about that a little bit next week as they get ready to cross the Jordan at flood time. Now, there is, there is no set pattern to these consecration moments, but I think, what, are these, what do these rocks mean? These, one of these things these rocks can mean for us as we study the book of Joshua is there are key consecration moments that you and I need. Is it possible is it possible that this transition period for Estevan Alliance Church and when the next pastor comes, is it possible that we need a consecration moment to get ready for the next season that God has for the ministry of Estevan Alliance Church? Could very well be. That's, so when someone says, what do those rocks mean? Maybe as we go through this, one of the things that will come up is these rocks mean consecration, dedication, rededication and recommitment as we get ready to move into the next season that God has for us. 
Verse 12. So after telling, getting the word out through the administrators and through the officers about the, the three-day wait and then the crossing, verse 12, but to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, remember that's the, the trio, the two and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan. This is what Joshua says to them. Remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you after he said... The Lord your God will give you rest by giving you... So they had asked for this land on the east side. God said, sure, I'll give you rest. You can have that land. You can settle there with your flocks and your herds. So you remember that command that God gave you. Verse 14, your wives and your children and your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you east of the Jordan, but all your fighting men ready for battle must cross over ahead of the other Israelites. You are to help them until the Lord gives them rest as he has done for you until they too have taken possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. After that, you may go back and occupy your own land, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you east of the Jordan toward the sunrise. So there, there was, um, what would you call it? A deal was struck. A deal was struck when they asked Moses, can we have this land on the east side of the Jordan? Moses said, sure, but when it comes to crossing the Jordan, the men in your two and a half tribes are going to have to leave everything behind and they're going to have to be the front guys going across the Jordan to help your fellow Israelites take possession of the land that God is giving them. So that was sort of the reciprocal thing. Moses said, yeah, you can have this land on the east side, but when it comes time to cross the Jordan, your fighting men need to be ready for battle and to leave your, their, their families behind, leave their fields behind, leave their animals behind and go and fight this battle until your brothers and sisters are settled on their side west of the Jordan. Early possession came with an additional condition and that additional condition was costly. So what's at stake in this requirement? What's at stake in this condition? I think the key word that's important here is the idea of unity. Even though these people on the east side of the Jordan had their land and had their property and they were getting their rest, if we look at the map again, the one we saw before, if we look at the map again, think of it in terms of how are you gonna get a million people to function in a unified way? Because these guys on the east, they're already settled. They're ready to go. They're ready to uh, let their herds graze. They're, they've got their piece of property. But what's at stake for the entire nation is unity. And so the condition was on these two and a half tribes is, okay, your fighting men then are going to cross over the Jordan. If I remember right, it says first. They're going to cross over first when the uh, Israelites go in to take the land and when they're going to cross over to Jericho. The fighting forces, the, the special ops uh, kind of people, the uh, seals, if you will, those kind, that's, the, that's the idea in this kind of terminology. The, these are the specially trained fighting uh, men, the special forces that are going to go first, um, leaving the women and children, and it looks like some of the men stayed behind who weren't special forces or special ops. But what's at stake is unity. How do you get a million people to work together? 
One of the ways, Joshua says, is those who are already settled are going to come and help those who aren't settled. At what price? Well, there is a price, right? There is a price to pay for unity. Uh, it might relate to their property. It might relate to their livestock. They don't have the, the men left in their side of the Jordan to have total and absolute security. But it is, it is about unity. And so one of the things the stones say, because in the original there was 12 stones from 12 tribes, I'm not sure how big they are, but there was 12 stones from 12 tribes in one heap, right? That says something about the 12 tribes being together, being one, learning to live as one. What do those stones mean? Maybe those stones can tell us something about what it means to learn to live as one. You know, the Old Testament, for all the problems we have with the Old Testament and some of the history of the Old Testament and some of the things that happen in the Old Testament, the Old Testament has a great sense of what it means to be one. They have a great sense of understanding what it means to be together and as a corporate entity. There's a movie Oh, back in, the, in 1996, I think it was called. The movie was White Squall uh, with Jeff Bridges, and it was about a, a, a boatload of, of young men going on a training thing on a schooner. And the bell on the ship, I forget the name of the ship, but the, I don't remember what the bell on the ship said. The bell on the ship said, where we go one, we go all. That's kind of, here's these million people, right, going through the wilderness for 40 years. Where we go one, we go all. And together, we're in this together. And so there, there is certainly in the Old Testament a sense of corporate relationship, uh, not individuality, which to us we sometimes think is a detriment. It's not about groupthink, but it's about both corporate and individual uh, responsibility. And all that comes in, the, in what we would call in the Old Testament a covenant relationship, a covenant relationship with God who made a promise and a covenant relationship with one another because really they were in it together. I've seen it in, in some sports teams where uh, their phrase for the year is something like uh, better together or we do this together. But the idea of unity certainly is enhanced if we have a sense of our corporate responsibility to one another, if we have a sense of our, corporate re our covenant relationship with one another. And the New Testament way of wording that is they describe one another as brothers and sisters. Together we are family. We are brothers and sisters. So the call for unity here is a call for loyalty to those in our brotherhood and sisterhood who are in need. But it, this whole thing, east, on the east side of the Jordan, it's about unity. Maybe a good lunchtime discussion for you around your table. What would it take to have a million people working together in a unified way? What would it take, what's it take to make, to bring unity? What's it take to establish unity? What's the price of unity? But what's the importance of unity? 
Obviously, we get to the New Testament, there's no question about the importance of unity for the church of Jesus Christ. It's our oneness that shows the world God's love. Interesting. If you haven't got one, I would encourage you to get one, but in our, uh, our prayer guide, the prayer from yesterday, let me read it to you, day 18. Day 18, therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For, and by the way, the yous here are plural, they're not singular. They're addressed to the group, the church at Ephesus. I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Ephesians 4, 1 to 3. And here's the prayer. This is our prayer because this is our prayer calendar. If you don't have one, they're on the back table as you're leaving. God, help our church body to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have given us. Help us in all our interactions with one another to have humble and gentle hearts. What's it take for a million people to work together in unity? Uh, there's one answer. Humble and gentle hearts. When did unity break down with the children of Israel? When they grumbled and griped and complained. Grant us patience for one another, bearing with one another in love. Grant the body of Christ unity. May we walk humbly with you, God, allowing you to show us our wrongs. What do these stones mean? What do these stones mean? Unity. Unity. And then finally, verses 16 to 18. So then these tribes, the eastern, on the east side, then they answered Joshua, whatever you have commanded us, we will do, and wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Now, if you understand the rest of the story, I think you'd be a little cynical at this point of their sincerity. Because if you know the rest of the story, they didn't obey Moses fully. Now, are they just saying that to sound like they're on board? Are they just saying that to sound like they're united? We don't know. And maybe I confess. Maybe that's just my cynical side coming through. But I know the history is that they did not fully obey Moses. So just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your word and does not obey it, whatever you may command them is to be put to death. That's just the way it was in that time and era. Only be strong and courageous. I think these people had very short memories. And I think they had very distorted memories. It's almost a very self-serving sort of affirmation of Joshua. And now they're telling Joshua to be strong and courageous. <laughs> Given the history of these people, they need to be telling themselves to be strong and courageous. Don't put it on your leader. Now that's just my reading between the lines. There is, there is nothing in any part of Scripture that says um, they were insincere. 
but I'm using what I know about the rest of Scripture to look at this and go, I'm not so sure about the sincerity and the affirmation that comes here. You know, when a new leader comes, so here's the new leader, and, and it, it, Moses is dead. Here's the new leader, and they say, you know, just as we, maybe they think Josh, Joshua didn't hear the rest of the story. I don't know. A pastor friend of mine, when I was uh, my first church after seminary, the first church pastored in northern Ontario after seminary, uh, Baptist pastor friend of mine, we got pretty close in the couple years he was there. He had a line that he learned in seminary about candidating and so on. And he told me at one time, and it went like this. The people who are the happiest to see you come are the happiest to see you go. That's just kind of life in pastoral ministry. You know, we talk about the leader, and, we, and you read through the prayer calendar, and we want the person that God is selecting for Estevan Alliance Church. We want the person that God wants to have in Estevan Alliance Church. So what happens two or three or four or five years down the road if all of a sudden we don't think that's the person God wants for Estevan Alliance Church? What changed? They tell Joshua to be strong and courageous. But really, they're the ones who need to follow that exhortation. They need a new pattern of not complaining and not murmuring. They need a new pattern of selflessness. They need a new pattern of obedience to the commands of the Lord. Joshua chapter 1. The transition is coming to an end. A new leader has been selected. It's about time to enter the land that God is giving them. A couple weeks ago at a search committee meeting, somebody on the search committee talked about the new opportunity. And the way it was worded was this, is that this is an opportunity to start fresh. That our transition here at Estevan Alliance Church is an opportunity to start fresh. And that's exactly what a transition can be. It's an opportunity to start fresh. But for that to happen, I think we've got to ask ourselves, what do these stones mean? What do these stones mean in the story of Joshua? What do these stones mean in the story of Estevan Alliance Church? And I hope you take that seriously. I hope you'll, you'll come Sunday to Sunday, both learning about the story of Joshua, but also saying, what does that have to do with us? What does that have to do with me here at Estevan Alliance Church in this period of transition? Because as, as the Lord calls Joshua to be the leader, there is no question that it is an opportunity to start fresh. What he's doing with all the tribes is an opportunity for, for, for a new experience, for a new beginning. Transition can be that. So what do these stones mean? What do these stones mean? The ones you had a hand on and the one you put down here. What do they mean? And what can they mean in the next few weeks as we talk about Joshua? Maybe, maybe you might want to keep these stones as a reminder, as a memorial. Maybe when we're done with Joshua, somebody might say, we need to keep those stones because of what they tell us. We need to keep those stones, and maybe that doesn't mean we keep them here. Maybe we move them outside, create our own little stone pile, and it's a memorial. It's a memorial to things that we learned in between, in the transition. And when we see them, they remind us, ah, that's what, that, that's what those stones mean. 
going to invite Rick and the team to come and lead us in our closing songs.